Hello. You've Hello. not heard us for a while. Hello, Douglas. I was just saying, I introduce you. You know, you, sorry, you just, I know, but I jumped the gun because I'm like that. That's what I do. You, you, you are. Hello and welcome to the revamped, the revived Spooks. S B O O K S Spooks. Now, for those of you in the podcast entity who know about us, we are a podcast, or we were. And we had lots of exciting guests on. We discussed books, we discussed music, we discussed TV and film. We had an interregnum. Do you know that word, Douglas? Oh, I'm just looking it up. I've had an interregnum. I've had an interregnum. I've got a salve for that, I think. That's okay. I know you have a salve for many things. Mm -hmm. Now, we're just going to start the show by chatting to Douglas as usual. I can tell you we have a stellar guest. (sighs) Douglas, stellar. Stella doesn't even cover it. Doesn't even cover it, says Douglas Skelton. (laughs) What do you think of that? Oh, no, no. (laughs) I broke into somebody else there. Um, So a stellar guest. We'll not name him right now, but but we will do in a minute. We're crime writers. Keep them, keep them. It's like the, 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 the podcast equivalent of turning the page. Keep them listening. Keep them listening. Keep them listening, Douglas. That's it. You're You're a man of great um eh, something yeah so things have happened since i think it's 18 months or something like that since our last podcast it won't really? be far away from that yeah really God. i was looking back and in that time not only have you moved people with your excellent prose via your new title a rattle of bones fabulous title yeah well, it's okay and but you've moved physically. I have. I have. I've moved from one chair to another. Frequently. I do that quite often. No, you've yes. moved you've yes. moved from the deepest, darkest Ayrshire yes. to the urban sprawl that is Renfrewshire. Yes, I have. I have a flitting, as we as we call it here in the central belt. Was I it have, a moonlight flitted? Uh, well, yes, I had to get away very, very quickly. Um, but that's the story of my life. Indeed it is. A torrid uh, and tawdry one, if yes. I may say so. Uh, now, tell us a wee bit about A Rattle of Bones. It was published uh, in the beginning of August, I believe. Beginning of August, yes. August the 5th, to be precise. It's uh, the third in the Rebecca Connolly series after Thunder Bay and The Blood is Still. And um, it, it begins back in 1752 on a small hillock uh, above Balahulish. And then mm-hmm. jumps into the present day. As usual, I'm, I'm I'm linking back to something in Scottish history or mythology. In this case, it's the it's the story of James of the Glens, who was um, perhaps wrongly convicted of murder in the back in the early 1750s and was executed on that hill. The famous Red Fox, I think I'm right in saying. He was accused and convicted of murdering, yes, the, the famous Red, well, Red Fox, Robert Louis Stevenson. He was never called that in the day. It was Robert Louis Stevenson that called him that uh, and right. kidnapped. Um, and uh, then I jumped to the modern day and there's a modern day link to the case and another James Stewart has been perhaps wrongly convicted for the murder of a, of a politician. And Rebecca is following the story up. And there's various other permutations and complications, of course. Are you just going to read it to us, eh? Yeah, I think I might. Yes, I think I might. Uh, it sounds very, very, in fact, listeners, I know 
it's very interesting and very, very good because I've read it. Yes, you did. I did. It took me, you know, I cried. I laughed. <laughs> I cried when I started and I laughed when I finished, basically. <laughs> no, it was it. I can recommend it to you. It's very, very good. Douglas does an excellent job with his, um, the historic, can I say just at the beginning, the historical um, passage at the beginning of the book is absolutely brilliant. I really like, of course, the whole book's brilliant, but I thought you captured that just perfectly, Mr. Skelton. That's kind of you, Mr. Myrick. Hang on, just till I take a note of this. Another mm-hmm. £2.50 into the Myrick account. Okay, you that's ca- fine. You cannot use it as a quote. Can I not? No. Um, right, so uh, what's going to happen is we're going to have a guest every week, hopefully a stellar guest. Maybe none as stellar as the one we're about to have. But nonetheless, not only from the world of literature and books, but from film, TV, perhaps even music. You know, I'm speaking to Sting as we speak. Uh, well, don't speak to us first. I'm excited. Um, I, I, you know, I'm really excited as to what's going to be coming up. Hopefully, over the next um, few podcasts. Yes. Uh, well, it's going to be exciting. Let me tell you, and 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 you'll have recognised our new slick format, which is also another another huge bonus. Um, having not being worried by by technical technical difficulties, as Douglas termed them constantly. Oh, there are always technical difficulties. Always doesn't matter what you do. Well, there we are. Good. So I think it's time that we have a little chat about our guest to come. He is without doubt one of the most uh, famous authors, not just in Scotland, but not even in the UK, but across the world. And we will be speaking shortly to Mr. Ian. Rankin, and I know you're a fan of his, Douglas. Oh yes, very much. Been reading him for years. You have good oh, stuff, yes. and that, you never picked anything up from that, though. None, none of that magic rubbed off. No, no, I didn't learn anything from him. I'm afraid that's, you know, that's a failing in my part. I know, but what can we do? Uh, and I think we just to chat a little bit. I I've also got a book out, as you know. Yes, and it's called Terms of Restitution. Yes. Terms of Restitution is a gangster thriller set in Paisley, London and Italy. Uh, And it's featuring Xander Finn and his various families, his own family and his crime family. And it's been described by the Times as fisticuffs meets philosophy. Mm, I saw Uh, that. I saw that. A winning combination of fisticuffs meets philosophy. Mm-hmm. Remind me to bring that up with Mr. Rankin when I've. <laughs> yes, the the quiet, sleepy hamlet that is Paisley is racked with violence. It, it well, you you're just half a mile away, so <laughs> you'll know all about it. I was quite worried when I heard you'd moved there, um, as were as were the rest of the population of Renfrewshire. Uh, have you ever come across any violence since you're? You've, not not even a hangnail. They tell me that many of the, the bad lots that used to frequent Paisley and its environs have yeah. now moved elsewhere. Yeah, round about, round about Loch Lomond, I hear. You know, there's, you know, there's a few of them. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> um, moving swiftly on. So that's us. So prepare yourself for the new and revamped spooks. And now I am delighted to welcome our superstar guest, 
the one and the only Ian Rankin. Ian, how are you this fine day? Uh, it is a beautiful day out there, although I believe the weather's about to change, the postman tells me. So it's the old, we'll pay for it, we'll pay for it if you're Scottish. Something nice happens, it's got to be, it's got to be a yin and yang, something bad is just around the corner. It was like the Scotland football game last night, you know. <laughs> you know fine that that's a glimmer of hope which will not be fulfilled as, <laughs> as time progresses. Israel or horses 6-0 at Hamden, yeah. but not to worry. Yeah, yeah. Pulling, pulling defeat from the teeth of victory. That is exactly it. Now with us today is Ian and my co-host, Douglas Skelton. Yes, I am here. I am still here. Do you know, okay. when you introduced Ian there, I just felt we should have had some sort of applause or cheers, you know, like in Steve Wright in the afternoon. That's just, that, that'd just be tawdry. We yeah, missed of course, a that costs money, buddy. You can't do that. Ah, no, that's we true. Don't, we don't have sound effects. Oh, show. Ian, Denzel's got plenty of money. So we're here. I've got a lot of money, but don't tell anybody. But it's not from writing. <laughs> it's from my previous nefarious activities written. And anyway, we'll not get into that. Now, you have taken on the Herculean task of stepping into the shoes of the late, great William McIlvany with Dark Remains, published last week. I think I'm right in saying. Now, that must have been not only um, a privilege, but there must be a lot of pressure in that, Ian. There was a lot of pressure, um, and I did say to the publisher from the get-go, I said, look, if I start on this project and I feel that I'm not getting it, I'm not capturing his voice, I'm not capturing his world, mm. I'll just step away. Uh, I'm not going to finish a book um, that I'm not happy with. And so, yeah, I mean, the, 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 I guess the pressure was really, could I capture William McIlvany's voice? Could I ensure that people read this as mm. his work and not mine? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it must be a, a, a really difficult thing to do. And of course, you, you I think, as, as good as anybody, you knew him as well as his friend, well, not as well as his friends and family, but as well as the, the writing community would have known him. What kind of character was he, Ian? Um, well, I mean, he was he was great. He was, he was a gentleman. He was a poet. He was very thoughtful, philosophical, a, a terrific writer, very generous to other young writers from the get-go with me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was that kind of arc of our friendship slash relationship where, uh, you know, I first met him as a fanboy before I'd ever been published in 1985 yeah. and ran up to him to get a book signed. Um, then he uh, paid me a level of respect by turning up to a signing I was doing in Glasgow. There was almost nobody there. Um, but in walks Willie McIlvany and the whole room is suddenly galvanised. And we went off to the pub afterwards and, and <laughs> sort of toasted to the, the book in, 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 in whiskey. And that was Black and Blue, which was the first successful Rebus novel. But at that time, you know, I'd published about a dozen books and I was just barely getting by and... Uh, had no idea that, that Black and Blue would do any better than the books that had come before it. And then latterly, when Willie got that wonderful third act in his life and was he, suddenly his books were back in print and he was being lauded at crime fiction festivals and literary festivals up and down the land, I was invited to interview him at Harrogate at the Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Festival on a, a Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, <laughs> I think it was 10 a.m., it might be 9 a.m. And he's gone, dear God, Ian, who's going to come along and see me? Um, and the ballroom of the hotel was chocker, absolutely chocker, standing room only. He got, an, wow. he got an ovation as he walked into the room, and I could see him just rising almost off his feet 
with with pleasure to realize not only that it had a, a, a lasting effect on a generation or two of crime writers, but also that fans of crime fiction had not forgotten them either. That's fabulous. Um, Douglas, it's you. Yeah, um, exactly what did you have to work with? You know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen various uh, versions of it. So what yeah. did you have to, to, to work your magic with? I'll, I'll show you sometime. Maybe maybe Canongate will think about publishing this or putting it online in some form. Mm-hmm. I had about 100 typed A4 sheets that were from handwritten notes left by Willie that his widow, Siobhan, had found in his desk, in his office, his study, whatever. Canongate had typed them up. And, and I don't know who at Canongate Publishing typed them up, but because originally I thought it was actually Siobhan that typed them up. Um, but there'd be things where they would say, I think he's, I think this word is syzygy, but I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, and I go, yeah, being Willie McIlvany, the word definitely would be syzygy. Because <laughs> they couldn't always read his handwriting. And there was everything in there. There was, there'd be scenes that were written and rewritten and rewritten and reworked, um, polished, polished, polished. There'd be little one-liners and, and puns and jokes that he wanted to try and get in that he would just keep coming back to and, and tweaking. Um, there were things like uh, costings for him going away in a writer's retreat. Um, <laughs> there, were, there were messages, things he was going to say to a mate when he wrote his mate a letter. Uh, it was it was just, it was the inside of his head. It was the, the, the jumble inside William McIlvany's head as he from time to time pondered bringing Laidlaw back and teasing out what was in the notes, I start to realize, dear God, there's at least two different books here, if not three. Um, there's, there's a prequel, which is what I've written, but there yeah. were also notes towards what would be the final book. Uh, so I think he, always, he had that intention to bookend the three existing Laidlaw novels with a book from early on in Laidlaw's career and one that would be his final case before retirement. So, um, so this and, definitely and, this isn't the last book, Ian. Say again. This isn't the last book. This is one of you're going to do more. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not going to take on any more. But I mean, there wasn't. He didn't leave enough notes for the the, the final book was going to be called the Murder Artist, and it was a serial killer um, hmm. who's basically stalking Laidlaw, as far as I could make it. But there was only a few lines. There were no chapters complete, no real characterization, just a few teasing lines so if somebody were to take that task on it would be their book it would not be okay. William McIlvany's book it could be based on an idea by but it would have to be the other person's book and I'm not interested in that I've, I've done what I can do I think with this character so obviously you you were absolutely happy that you'd captured his voice and his essence if you like and I mean that must I can't picture myself if, if poor Douglas was to drop off this mortal coil, for instance. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine being asked to finish his, his next book. Can I just say neither can I? <laughs> who could who could uh, these no. unique voices i mean this was this was a challenge for me because marco vanni's voice is his voice it's not my voice it's nothing like my voice his way of looking at the world is not my way of looking at the world so yes that was a challenge but he'd left enough in the notes to give me a starting point i read and reread the Laidlaw books till i thought i'd captured something of his voice um but i've you know all the way through i'm going have i done it have i done it is, is it is it good enough um one thing I would say is a few critics, a few reviewers who've reviewed the book so far have had a stab at guessing where they think the join is in the yeah. book. And yeah. they've got it wildly wrong. 
um, because it's a patchwork. I mean, from basically about page one or two, there's bits of me in there. Um, it's more of a patchwork than it's just, oh, Willie died at this point, and from then on it's Ian Rankin right, and it's not like that at all. No. Um, so nobody's got it right. The, the the good news for me was that I had dinner on publication day, I had dinner with Siobhan, Willie's widow, and oh. we hadn't met uh, since, I think, bloody Scotland in Stirling when Willie was was last there, um, was also the last time I saw Siobhan. So we went for dinner after the publication day party, and um, she said, Ian, when I read the manuscript, the first time through, she said it was it, you'd given them back to me for the oh, for the course of that weekend. I was sitting in the room reading. Mm. He was with me, and it's the greatest gift you could have given me is to give me Willie back. And I just my heart was pierced. It takes a lot to pierce a Pfeiffer's heart, but it really she really got me with that. And she also said she couldn't see the join. So I thought, well, if she's happy, I'm happy. Yeah, that's the best critique of them all. I would say that that's well. Absolutely. Yeah. But it, it's set in 1972, so it's a prequel to the to the existing uh, Laid Law books. Did you find writing about the early 70s liberating in any way to, uh, as a crime writer? I did, and I've noticed a few other crime writers are saying that they've gone back in time as well, and it's partly a way of not having to write about COVID. I think mm. um, I f- I found it liberating to the extent that the police procedural was a much simpler beast if you were writing about that period. There's no DNA analysis. Um, there's no computers in police stations. There's no mobile phones. There's no CCTV uh, to track anybody's whereabouts or where their cars are at any particular time. Um, it, was a, it was a simpler world of Glasgow gangsters. And I think we kind of feel that we sort of know these figures. Um, funnily enough, the first time I met Willie McIlvanny, uh, August 1985 at the Edinburgh Book Festival, I also met Jimmy Boyle um, at the Edinburgh Book Festival because Canongate had just released uh, his book and I got him to sign a copy to me. So yeah, these guys like Jimmy Boyle were around back then. Um, now, I've always shied away from historical novels, re- uh, writing them, um, because I felt there's an awful lot of work, there's an awful lot of research, because somebody's going to go, oh, no, I think you'll find that chocolate bar wasn't released until 1973. <clears throat> yeah. um, I was lucky in a way, because this book was started during lockdown, um, but halfway through the writing of the first draft, the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh opened their doors for a few hours a day, and I just I booked a slot, I got in, I got the Glasgow Herald newspaper for October 72, and I read it from cover to cover Mm. to find out what was happening in the world, what was happening politically, what was happening socially, what was happening in Glasgow, um, what was on the telly, how the football teams (laughs) were doing, et cetera, et cetera, just so that the, the, so the local color, the color would be right, the period color would be right, you know, where were people buying their clothes, how much was a car, uh, how much was a house, all of that I got from a close reading of the the Glasgow Herald. And I also got mention of a young writer who had been taken on by the University of Strathclyde as a creative writing fellow, and that young man was called William McIlvanny. <laughs> Good career. I know. So, it was so you found him in when I read that story. Well, that's uh, you know that that's always something that I I wanted to write an historical novel when I first started out because I, I only started writing because I was ill and I couldn't do anything else, and. Um, I, I remember thinking to myself, I'll have to spend so much time researching this and I don't even know if I could have the discipline to write a book. Uh, and so it's taken you all this time to mm. to get to the stage where you've, you've written an historical novel. Yeah, and it's given me confidence that if I ever did want to write a prequel to Rebus, I could. I'm not saying I will, 
but it's given me the confidence because people have said, oh, look, he's getting on and he's getting on a bit. His health isn't what it was and he's no longer a cop. He's now a retired gentleman of leisure. Uh, there's only so much you can do with him realistically, but there is always a feasible road of mm. taking him back to his early cases. And I've always shied away from that, but having done this book has given me a little bit of confidence that if I did want to go down that road, I could. Fabulous. Uh, I think that's that's really interesting. I didn't even consider that aspect of it because we used to get taken to Glasgow when I was a kid on shopping trips from Campbelltown. And I, I have a picture of Glasgow in the 70s so clearly in my mind. Um, and it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting reading uh, The Dark Remains to see, to, to, to go back there if you like. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a fascinating period. I don't, yeah, I mean, it's a good question as to why Willie chose 1972. Uh, I mean, the first book, Laidlaw, is set round about, what, 76, 77, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's gone back five years. Um, uh, and I knew it was October 72 because he talks about The Godfather being in cinemas in Glasgow. Right. And I looked, I went back and checked when The Godfather was released, and it was released sort of August, September, so October it would be in regional cinemas as opposed to just being in London. So I thought, OK, this is when the book's set. And it was, and then when I went and looked at the newspapers, I thought, oh, well, this is a genuinely interesting time because Glasgow is in flux. Um, mm -hmm. Almost the last shipyard left on the Clyde, Upper Clyde Shipbuilders, it was the time of the sit-in, the strike, when the workforce were taking it over and not allowing it to be shut down. Um, the motorway was being still built, built through the middle of Glasgow, the MA. Uh, interestingly, there's now discussions online as to whether that should be knocked down and the um, the houses that it replaced should be rebuilt. So that was happening. People were being decanted from the old tenements to new or shiny tower block estates on the periphery of Glasgow. So something of the community aspect of <coughs> Glasgow was mm. being lost. And all these working class hard men that Willie writes about in many of his books were starting to look at each, look at each other going, who the hell are we? Mm -hmm. our, our, can he, all our certainties have been taken away from us. So I was able to get a little bit of that in with these gangsters going, th the world's changing around us, what, what's going on? And there's a wee bit of that in, in um, Laidlaw as well, when he sits on the top deck of the bus going through the city of Glasgow, just trying to get a sense of the place. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Of course, you could have just have asked Douglas Skelton because he lived from Springburn, he lived through this period of time, didn't you, Douglas? I was there. I was there in the thick of it. But you, you, Douglas, so you weren't alive in 1972. Oh, I'm afraid I was. I'm not sure he's alive now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw The Godfather in the uh, Coliseum Cinema in Eglinton Oh, Street. my God. You see, that, that, now this brings them out as one other wee thing, which is that the, uh, the, the mention of The Godfather reminded me that Partly that was what got me into reading books, was that I wasn't old enough to go and see these films. <laughs> I got interested in films around the age of 10, 11, 12, but they were all X certificates. So stuff like The Exorcist or uh, Clockwork Orange, even something like um, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I think it was a 15 or a double A certificate. I wasn't old enough, but nobody stopped me getting the book. So my parents got me The Godfather, the book, for my Christmas in 1972. Wow. Um, and and I read it with great pleasure. I've, I've still got I've still got the copy somewhere here. I just don't know mm -hmm. exactly where. And that got me. I just thought literature is actually um, stuff that the adult world doesn't really want you to know about. You know, it's kind of ex certificate stuff. Um, and so I, I started devouring these books based on films that I wasn't allowed to go and see. I think that kind of happened to to me as well because for different slightly different reasons, you could really get into the pictures in Campbelltown at any time. Um, 
if you're a babe in arms, you'd be allowed into <laughs> an X. But yeah. the only thing about it was the films didn't. I mean, they only had Jaws last year to put you. In. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we were we were watching Sinbad and stuff like that in the 1970s, from you know from 1948 or whatever it was it was filmed. And of course, Douglas, you're a great film fan and um, and a book fan. How you know how, what was your experience in relation to to Ian's there? Well, kind of the same as, as Ian, except that I, I was old enough to see the films uh, and and read the books. So I, I had the, the best or the worst uh, of both worlds, uh, if you want to look at it that way. And all the films that, that Ian mentioned there, I, I, I'm afraid, did see in the cinema. <laughs> so we will just leave it there <laughs> with that. I did, I did eventually, when I was about 14, 15, I did start to go to the flicks on my own. Uh, Carden yeah. Den, where I grew up, we had a lovely old art deco cinema, I mean, a complete flea pit called the Rex. And I would go along to the Rex uh, midweek evenings for a double bill of <clears> films, <throat> and I would blag my way in. So around, from about the age of 14, 15, I was blagging my way into ex-certificate films. But aye, they were really dodgy. It was like Italian horror films, badly dubbed, and sort of yeah. Spanish westerns, and okay. second-run kung fu films with really bad dubbing and editing and everything else. <laughs> but if it was an ex-certificate, I was in there, because I just wanted to know what the hell was going on. Yeah, yeah, it was a whole new world for us. When, so when you were writing um, the the book, the Jekyll and Hyde reference, yeah, that's kind me. of a, kind, yeah, kind of, <laughs> yeah, it applies to you, doesn't it? Because you are in ranking, you have you have your your way of writing, and you have your characters, you have your world. But here you were becoming somebody else. How difficult was it to get into that frame of mind to 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 basically be Laidlaw, to be William McIlvaney? I, I I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, I, it had to be an act of ventriloquism. I, I've been reading Willie McIlvaney since I was in my early 20s. Um, it appears I can mimic his style enough um, to, to, to persuade readers they're reading him, not me. It helps that he's got a very particular way of looking at the world, which is very different from my way of looking at the world. And it's a very different world that he writes about, 70s Glasgow. Um I mean, someone in my book, someone like Cafferty, uh, the gangster who runs Edinburgh, is very much a Glasgow gangster. Edinburgh's mm. never had people like Cafferty, really. Um, and in the early books, when Cafferty's first mentioned, his backstory is that he grew up in Glasgow. Mm. Uh, I forgot that. And then later on in, in the books, I've got him grown up in Edinburgh because I forgot I'd already given him a backstory. <laughs> um, but he was, so he's very much based on somebody like John Rhodes, um, gangster figure who crops up in, in all of... Willie's um, laid law books. There, there are kind of three central gangsters in this book, and all of them were mentioned by Willie in his notes. I mean, I thought of oh, three, that's that's laying it on a bit thick, but Willie wants three, therefore three there will be. Mm. Um, but they all get they all play roles in in various of the uh, the laid law novels. But I think John Rhodes is the one who absolutely fascinated Willie as a character. John Rhodes has a has, has a, a belief system, a value system. And so Laidlaw and him can actually sit down and have a proper talk, a proper discussion. They understand each other. There's a bit of empathy there. And that reminds me a lot of how Rebus's relationship with Cafferty has evolved uh, through the series of my books. So, I mean, I learned a lot from Willie and admired him. But, you know, it was writing in his style. I, I was lucky he left me enough. He left enough notes um, and, and, and character sketches and scenes that I could just get in there and go, okay, I know what I'm doing in this, you know. Um, we're in, in fact, um, 
the uh, the people at Canongate when I've given the first draft of the book, they said, Ian, it's basically just it's just hard men sitting in pubs, psyching each other out and smoking fags. <laughs> and I went, yeah, that's pretty much what happens in Laidlaw. You know, I mean, that's the Laidlaw series in a nutshell. Um, it's not a world of women. And yeah. so they said, well, can we get them, can we make it a bit more kinetic? Can we get them out of the pubs a wee bit if possible? I went, okay, I'll do my best. So I did that. And I said, also, can we, there are women in the book, uh, women characters, can we just beef up their roles a wee bit? Um, so that's two things I did that maybe made it that this book is not completely true to the ethos of the Laidlaw series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's more time outside the pubs and there are more women given more given bigger roles than it would be the case in Willie's books. Yeah, yeah I mean, on, on that subject, Ian, of, you know, having to change the, the kind of ethos of it because of changing times since Willie wrote that, uh, how have you found... Because you've you've kind of spanned that time of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's cheap to call it political correctness, but you know what I mean, where yeah. you've had to be more, everyone has to be more careful what they do and say and be more inclusive and all the things that are expected of all writers now. How, how have you managed to, to, to span that? And has your writing changed because of it? Um... <sighs> hard to say if I've changed on purpose or if I've done it subconsciously mm. um yeah I mean there are probably uh, there are probably killers in early books of mine where I thought oh if this person's a cross dresser that's a good twist mm. and now I'd probably think twice before doing that or I would yeah. make sure that um it was done with consideration in a way that I didn't worry too much about it when I was a young man in a hurry um, if it was good enough for Brian De Palma in Dress to Kill, it was good enough for me. Um, oh, spoiler alert! If anybody's not seen Dress to Kill, oh, no. uh, but no. you know, and, and the minute I saw that, a further spoiler alert! The minute I saw the, the the nose of the killer in the woman's dress and the glass sunglasses, oh Christ, that's Michael Caine. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, still a good film though. Um, but yeah, no. I, the, what I didn't do in this book was I didn't bring in the Glasgow Patois. It's possible that in Willie's books there's a bit more Glaswegian than I've put in this because if I put it in, I might well have got it wrong. What I did do, and I apologise, Douglas, for not contacting you, but I mean, I did contact a couple of Glasgow uh, writers who gave me a heads up or I just checked things and said, look, is this really where this building is? Was that really, is that really a, a real pub? This Willie's mentioned this pub, is that a real pub or a fictional pub? Um, and was it around back then? And did it have a pool table in the back? You know, like anything, um, just to check some of the details. And of course, there'll be, there'll be errors, I would imagine. I mean, I did as much as I could. I got lots of Glasgow street plans from the period uh, and, and bought as many <clears> online as I could, um, 8Zs and all the rest of it, to check how the A8 was, the, the M8 was progressing at that time and things like that. Um, but yeah, there will there will be mistakes. Um, you know, there's bound to be people that you know. I was 12 years old living in a mining village in Fife uh, in 1972. What do, what do, what do I know about Glasgow? I don't think I'd ever been to Glasgow at that time. I mean, I might have once got taken to a Scotland football game, but it'd been out of the bus into the stadium, out of the stadium into uh, the bus and home. Out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 an incredible to think the changes that have happened, Douglas. I mean, you you're slightly older than Ian and I. Um, together together yes <laughs> you were there when they built George Square and the city chambers. the tobacco barons <laughs> yes. Douglas, 
That's why he wheezes, Ian. That's why he wheezes because of the intake of tobacco during his long life. You know, how do you feel about about the changes? I mean, Ian, you'll have noticed the changes in Edinburgh over the years, and Douglas, you'll have noticed the changes in Glasgow. Do you think they've progressed at the same pace, or has maybe Glasgow outdone Edinburgh in terms of changing? Well, I obviously can't speak too much about Edinburgh. Um, Certainly, yeah, I would say Glasgow has, to my mind, has has changed uh, considerably more than than from what I can see in Edinburgh. And uh, some of it's for the better, some of it's uh, not so much for the good. People mourn the loss of the the tenements when the M8 went through, but what they forget is often these tenements were collapsing. They were tumbled down. You know, they they just weren't worth renovating. but there's a lot of other things. I, I won't drive in Glasgow now. I just won't drive because there's too many restrictions. And I just get lost because you're, you're taking on a, a wild ride to avoid uh, bus bus routes and taxi routes and, and cameras and this and that. Luckily, I don't need to drive in Glasgow anymore. But uh, Edinburgh, how much has that changed, Ian? Um Structurally, you know, if you were a, a tourist coming to Edinburgh, you probably would think, oh, no, the castle's still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the museum's still there. Greyfriars Bobby is still there. Uh, you possibly wouldn't see a lot of structural changes in the centre of the city, but there's been a, a, a kind of building boom on the outskirts, um, a lot of new housing going up, a lot of new student accommodation going up. I mean, the student population is just mushroomed. I first came to Edinburgh really as a student in 1978, um, and it was very little student accommodation then. I wasn't offered accommodation. They said that we've got an accommodation crisis. You're going to have to travel from home every day. And I went, oh, you're, oh, you're right. You know, I'm not doing that. So for the first 10 weeks I was at uni, I shared a room with a school friend of mine uh, in a motel on the outskirts of Edinburgh until we found a, a room in a, uh, in, in, in a, in a shared flat. Um, so yeah, but the the, the the DNA of the city really is the people, and I would suspect, as with Glasgow, that people haven't changed that much. Um, the the people you will meet in the the traditional drinking dens of Edinburgh would be recognisable to Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, never mind the young Ian Rankin. And I dare say, when you go, you know, if you go to the the Sarihid or Steps Bar or somewhere in Glasgow you're going to meet denizens who would have been recognisable in the early 70s or even in 1870s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a bit like that in Campbelltown as well, because though, you know, Campbelltown was one of these places that was so far away from everything else that nothing changed for years and years and years. And I was just thinking about that this morning, about a question to ask you about the use of language. Um, And you said that you'd kind of left out the Glasgow vernacular a bit. Uh, because I, I think that if you'd recorded my granny from Macri Hanish in 1903 hmm. and you recorded a woman of a similar, you know, you know, from 2021 from Macri Hanish, I don't think they'd sound anything alike. No, that's interesting. I mean, you know, where I grew up, um, I mean, it was a village. Bow Hill was a village eventually became part of a bigger town called Carden then. But when I go back there to see old school friends, um, usually for funerals, I've got to say, um, they, I, you know, I, I, the, 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 the way they speak doesn't seem to me to have changed since I was a wee kid. Mm. Uh, no, it, it really doesn't. I mean, there's a bit more modern speak, a bit more. There's a bit of Americanism might have crept into the younger generation. That they love that rising inflection, as though they're always asking a question, mm. even though they're not. 
Um, but and and I can a lot of the modifiers and the pause fillers like I, I don't remember when I was a wee kid like didn't exist as a pause filler but now it, but I remember it arriving when I was a, a young teenager um, I used to annoy my friend uh, George McAndrew by every time he said like I would put a finger up and count finger how many times he was saying it he used to really get annoyed because he couldn't say a sentence without the word like entering it at one point or another um so yeah there have been some changes i mean I, what i do like to do i don't write in scots that was a conscious decision i made a long long time ago because i was starting to write novels trying to write novels around the time of uh, james kelman and suddenly writing in modern scots was something you could do in a way that possibly hadn't been thought of previously and I made a decision, no, I'm going to write in fairly standard English and Scots will, will read it in their own voice inside their head. Um, and it means I'm not putting off any potential readers who might go, who might be stumbling over words or constructions because they don't understand what they mean. Um, but I do like to sneak Scots words in. I mean, you know, even postmodern Scots words like hee-haw. I'll try and get hee-haw <laughs> in the mitre in London. I'll say, what does this mean? <clears throat> <laughs> and then I'll get I'll get the lovely thing of actually explaining to them. Um, but if you do do that, of course, then you've got you then you know your book goes to America, and Americans are going what the, what what? I mean, in America, yeah. even my titles get changed. Flesh Market Close, a real street in Edinburgh became Flesh Market Alley, because the publishers thought nobody in America will know what a close is. I just thought it was ridiculous. Um, and you know, Rebus can't wake up in the morning with a fag in his mouth in the American edition. <laughs> uh, in a way that used to happen in some of the early Rebus novels. And then when you get into, you know, when you, your translator, God bless them, translators are overworked and underpaid everywhere and they don't always have the ability to get in touch with you and ask you what this means. So when you do put in these strange words, um, you always run the risk of them being, I mean, even English words get, get, get even English phrases I've used have been, have been misquoted. Uh, the French edition of one of the recent books, there's a wee footnote at the bottom of a page to explain what I get the feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto means. Really? I get the feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I thought that was from a pretty famous film. Yeah. No, there's a wee footnote that explains that Rebus here is referring to two American AOR bands, Kansas and Toto. Wow. No, what? no, he's not. That, that, that's a bit like David Bowie's. I, I think I'm right in saying that some of David Bowie's songs were translated into German and they didn't. the lyrics didn't bear any relation at all to the ones that he'd actually written in English. Oh, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, it's a really odd... I mean, I remember they, they butchered my wonderful whiskey from small glasses in German into deadly flotsam. Yeah. Well, German is a, it's an extra... I mean, I'm learning German just now in Duolingo. I've been doing it since lockdown started. It is an extraordinary language. Um, in fact, if I hadn't been for German, I wouldn't have met my wife because... I did German at high to get to, to study English at Edinburgh Uni, you'd have a higher language, and I was hopeless at languages. And I'd done old grade German and got a C. I thought, oh Christ, I'll give it a go and do higher German. And I did it. And uh, I scraped a C, which meant I got to go to Edinburgh Uni, which is where I met my wife. Wow. So if it wasn't if it wasn't for that lovely German language, I wouldn't be where I am now. It is it is. I mean, I've I've been trying to learn Swedish during lockdown as well, with with varying success and and <laughs> and go. You know the famous um, board game, mm -hmm. um, Asian board game, and it is, it's only got black and white tiles, and it's the yeah. most bloody complicated thing you've ever done in your life. Yeah, you think you're winning, uh, yeah. and you're, you're only a few moves from the end and you're winning, and suddenly you've lost. I know, it's, it's absolute, you know, and it is a, I like chess, but I, you know, I kind of think goes a step forward, a step on, if you like. Yeah, I think it's harder to compute what the next move's going to be in Go than it is with chess. Yeah. Kind of, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. 
It's a strange one. Douglas, we'll have to, we'll not take up much more of your time, Ian. I know you're a busy man. Douglas, your final question for Ian? Yeah, do you want to tell us about this this uh, new TV show? It's just when you, uh, Denzel mentioned Macra Hanish, it came into my head because it's, ah, you've, it's, you've it's been, subbed me. Yes, it's <laughs> been filmed in, uh, that was my intention, it's filmed in Gia. Swine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've I've been under, you know, uh, under a vow of secrecy for yeah. for about six, oh, more than six months. And I see, yeah. uh, t- STV came to me in January and said, Ian, we've pitched an idea at Channel 4 for a, uh, it's a, it's a competition, it's a, a quiz, a real, real a kind of reality quiz show in which members of the public will go to gear, um, which we will rename to make it like it's a fictional island, uh, to investigate a murder. And it'll be three teams, and each team will have a real-life ex-cop leading them. Um, will you will you plot it for us? And I went, geez, oh, um, you're not asking for much, uh, but I'll give it a go. Sure. And it was it wasn't like writing a novel. I mean, it was because it's more like one of those old um, <clears throat> fantasy role playing books. Throw a six and go to this page. Throw a three and go to that page. Oh, yeah. Because the, the 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 contestants can talk to anybody in the island they want. The actors are embedded in the community, so you don't always know if you're talking to an actor or a member of the public, <laughs> and they can ask them anything they want. So you can't really script it. You can you can say to the okay, look, Mister Actor or Ms. Actor. If they come to you and they ask about X, you could say Y. But if they ask you about Y, you could say Z. And you've got to come up with all these different... So what you need is actors who are actually great, almost like comedians, they've got to be great um, uh, improvisers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did it. I mean, I did a kind of, you know, I sketched a, a whodunit and um, and then they asked me to keep doing more and more dialogue and more twists and more twists and... Uh, Oh, geez. And then he said, do you want to come to the film? And I went, no, I don't want to come to the film. And um, because it was, you know, A, it was during lockdown. They were all in a bubble. There was a big team there in a bubble. I said, I don't want to get involved in that, really. So I left them to yeah. it. I've seen the trailer and the trailer looks amazing. And I've heard from one of the cops involved that it, it's they, they had a great time and said it's really, really good. Um, so my, my hope is everybody loves it. It becomes a huge franchise like MasterChef and I can retire to the sun. <laughs> because I, I've got I've got creator rights and executive producer rights. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you couldn't have found a more beautiful island on which to film. I mean, I based I set one of my books on on the gear and I called it Guernsey. Uh-huh. Um, and in, indeed, one of the locals from Gia is really the basis for my Hamish. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know, I'm I'm quite sure he'll John Martin. His name is, and he'll, he'll definitely pop up in that. Channel Four thing because I know it's like <laughs> <laughs> one last question, Ian. Before and we can let you go and get on with your be your busy life. I think we're looking at twenty three Rebus novels to date. Um, now a lot of people think it must be easier to write a series of novels rather than just constant standalones or one offs, but I I don't think it is. What 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 do you think? No, you guys know it's not. I mean, it's it's there's pros and minuses of writing a series. Um, uh, it gets harder. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're writing a series or standalones. Writing just gets harder. It gets harder because you want each book to be better than the book before. And when you've written a lot of books, that's not easy. You don't want to be repeating yourself, if at all possible. But your publisher, if you're writing a series, and your readers, if you're writing a series, don't want the books to be radically different from what came before. So different enough to keep you interested and keep you on your toes, but not so different. They go, wait a minute, this is a cookbook. I thought I was getting a crime novel. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, the nice thing, the thing I've had going for me, although it's also, again, been a, a rod from my own back, 
is deciding to edge Rebus more or less in real time. So that when I sit down to start a new book, I go, all oh, right, so his life has changed. Things have moved on. He can't chase suspects anymore. He's got health issues. He's not married. He can't live upstairs because he's got COPD. He's got to get a ground floor flat. He's no longer a cop. He's retired. So how do I inveigle him into a police investigation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, yeah. And so those are, are challenges, but they absolutely keep the series fresh. And if you've got a long running series, I think that's helpful. The bad news about it is eventually there's got to be an end point. You can't have him being, unless I do a, an Osman and move him into a care home and have him <clears> solving <throat> mysteries from the from the comfort of his Zimmer. <laughs> uh, his, home. Uh, his electric wheelchair, you know, unless I do that, then there's, there's got to be an end point, which is where the, the notion of the prequel is not quite nice to have that in my back pocket. Well, I mean, that, that, I mean that's, I mean, I've always found that the hardest thing is remembering all their backstories. <laughs> yes. What did you call Brian Scott's son? And I'm thinking, what did I call him? And the poor lassie at Polygon has got to go through it all and find out because I'm completely at a loss. Uh, yeah, you- I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I've had somebody years ago, somebody asked me something at an event in Edinburgh. They said, oh, you know, in book three, when this happens, I went, no, I don't, sorry, look, I'm on book eight now. I don't remember book three. I don't remember that page. I don't remember that scene. I don't remember anything about anything. And this guy came up to me afterwards and said, you need a Bible. You need somebody to do it. And he actually literally went through the books every character on every page, descriptions of them, what role they played, whether they were alive or dead at the end. He was a blessing. And uh, he produced this 300-page monument that I kept with me. Uh, He then, he he, he was a computer analyst, but he then, I think, retired and moved to Australia. And he dropped off my radar anyway. But um, that was brilliant for a long time. I could, oh, is so-and-so alive or dead at the end of book five? Oh, they're alive. Good, I can use them again. Can you ask um, this gentleman, can you find them and send them to me, please? <laughs> we all need somebody like that in our lives, yeah. But as I mean, as I've already told you, look, Cafferty's got two completely different backstories, and I think there's only one reader has ever noticed that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know I've made mistakes, but I never highlight them because then just people slag me off even more. Oh, I highlight them all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I, I want to be shriven. Uh, for the mis- I want to be scourged for the mistakes I've made. I've got a, a foot rail in front of the Oxford Bar, the actual bar of the Oxford Bar. There's no foot rail at the front of the Oxford Bar. Uh, I did that when I was living in France. I just misremembered. Um, I've got a song being wrongly attributed to Marvin Gaye uh, when it was Jimmy Cliff. I mean, and I just I said, don't change it, keep it in. I'm so mortified by that. Please keep it in. And whenever anybody notices it, I will apologise on my knees for the fact I got that wrong. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I I I live with my mistakes. And I never forget them. I know it's 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 always a tortuous moment when you realise you've done, and you get the book in the flesh, and it's people have it in their hands in Waterstones or wherever, and you know you've made a complete mess of that actual bit, and you just try to forget it. I, that's <laughs> you can't forget <clears throat> it though. You can't. It's like with reviews. You must be the same as me. If you get a great review, the only bit you remember is the one quibble. Yes. Oh, I oh I. I. Uh, you know, and and some of it, the the, the pieces I object you to is the where they pick a certain bit and they just concentrate on that for their own purposes. Uh, they're not re- reviewing the book at all. They're trying to make a, a quasi political point from you know taking that out of the book, and that really gets to me. But I try I try to remain on an even keel. Douglas had a good review once. Yes, and, I, I remember it well. 
Took me ages to write. Book, 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 arrived, ages. book arrived quickly and well yeah. packaged. Yeah. Do you, know, <laughs> do you know, Ian, it took me ages to write that as well. <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> uh, one of the worst ones, it was, who was it? It was Harlan Coben, I think, says his worst review. He got a one-star review on Amazon, which says, I don't remember ordering this book and I'm not going to read it. One star. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, it's really, it's really, and, and poor authors live and die by all this. <laughs> Ian, it's been I never read, abs- I never read. Listen, here's a top tip for you. Uh, any writers out there, do not look at your Amazon reviews ever, 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 ever. I never do. And definitely not Goodreads because they're worse. I'm with you on that. I mean, I mean, Amazon is has a slight temper to it, whereas Goodreads seems to be completely wild and un- unhinged and untrammeled. It's a jungle uh, out there. It's a jungle out there. It's, Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for... Uh, for coming on our, our new rejuvenated Spooks podcast. And I wish you all the best with the new one. Uh, the Dark Remains, um, and it's published by Canongate. And Denzel, that's a bottle of nice malt you owe me, remember that? I do, yes. I I always honour my pledges. Good. Fortunately, I want it delivered in person. I want you to drink it with me. I shall. I I'll tell you what, shall we invite Douglas along as well? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> He, he could be our designated driver, buddy. <laughs> no, he, no, no, he has done that with me. He actually drove my car for me once when I wasn't feeling too well. And we were going to a gig and Douglas, it's an automatic, and Douglas tried to change the, the <laughs> gears with a hairbrush. <laughs> you know, that, that sounds as if he's making it up. I can tell you he is not. That is true. <laughs> and something even more worrying, he actually, we, he saw the bus and he goes, ah, there's number 52 going to Argyll Street. <laughs> I'll just follow that. You know, and I thought, this guy hasn't got to. This was in the days before Satnav, I take it. Uh, but, I mean, there's a more pressing question than that, Denzel, which is, what are you doing with a hairbrush in your car? I'm very vain. That's what it is. And, and because I've st- I like your good self, uh, uh, with a good head of hair, I like to keep it pristine. So as soon as I stop the car, my first resort is to the hairbrush. Yep, vanity, and vanity mirror and hairbrush. Vanity mirror, hairbrush, a touch of rouge, and what are we? signal maneuver. Let's, let's pass that bus. <laughs> yeah, that we had to do it eventually because it was going to Cumbernauld. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ian, thanks again. God Thank bless you, you so guys. Much. Lovely talking to you both. You thanks, too. Dude. Cheers, thanks, buddy. Ian. Bye. Bye. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the inimitable. Mr. Ian Rankin, whose book The Dark Remains is out now on from all good bookshops and online, and it's a cracker too. Uh, Douglas, what did you make of that? What a oh, fine yeah. man. He is, he is. He's, always, he, he's always a fascinating listen. Um, you know, I mean, he's, although, you know, William McIlvany is seen as the, the, the godfather uh, of uh, Tartan Noir, which is a phrase I know that, that neither was particularly like no. um, you know Ian Rankin must be up there surely as well yes absolutely I mean I think that Ian's as I said in the interview I think that Ian's probably influenced as many writers as yeah. as anybody has in terms yeah. of crime fiction certainly in, in Scotland and no doubt in the UK and no doubt elsewhere yeah I mean he always downplays that and he always downplays his own um, a impact on the industry, but yeah, I mean, Mr. McIlvany obviously paved the way, and as 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 uh, William McIlvany would say, there were others before him, but it was certainly Laidlaw 
that that led to the explosion. Um, and you know, Ian Rankin was the the next big name, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 a, nice, a modest chap, unlike yourself. He is. he is. That's right. Yes, I, I take on the you know the uh, the big headedness for just about everybody. You certainly do. I've never one is one can never forget the debacle in twenty nineteen, which we'll not talk about on air. <laughs> the desperate phone calls, the crying, the, the tears, the, the fury, the fury. <laughs> but we'll not go into that, ladies and gentlemen, because it's a, a, a again. Yes, it's very painful for me. We don't want to talk about it. Indeed, it, indeed it was. And we, we were all with you when, when you didn't win the McElvary that year. Anyway, <laughs> and, 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 anyway, so... Well, let's um, talk about your book, um, because it's, you know, it's just out and it needs the help. Um, so what, uh, you've, you've moved away for, for this, you know, just to be clear to the, the listener, this is not a daily novel. It's not part of the, the Kinloch universe, as it were. So what, what made you want to do that? I think my motivation, Douglas, was it was be- at the beginning of, of COVID. Mm-hmm. And it became clear to me, as it did to everybody else quite quickly, that, that um, this was going to be quite a difficult time and an extended period of time. And as you know, you and I and other writers run about the circuit to bookshop signings and radio and TV events or um, festivals, whatever. And it takes up a lot of your time. So conversely, when none of this was going on, I had a lot more time on my hands. And I think a lot of writers also had the same idea, judging by the number of books that are coming out at the moment. Mm. Uh, But I thought I'd sit down and write something different just for a change, just to have something you know, um, a little more, a little change from Kinloch and a little change from the characters, not necessarily, you know, the styles, for anybody who's who's au fait with the daily novels will know that, that uh, and reads Terms of Restitution, will know that there's it's very much, there's a lot of, of Kinloch in it, if you know this. It's, it's, it's not all doom and gloom and darkness. There's humour in it as well. Yeah, there are stylistic connections to it, but it's it's still a very different world, I would say. It's a very different world because we're in we're in Paisley, Calabria and, and in London mm. and with a whole new set of characters. But within these characters themselves, to make them rounded in my book, you have to be you have to be rounded. Um and by saying that I mean that they all have to have their own life's not just like line of duty where everybody stares earnestly at each other and can, you know speaks in initialisms or acronyms <laughs> it's it's everybody including gangsters have like you know wives children mm-hmm. whatever else aunties uncles mothers fathers problems difficulties of all sorts the same as everyone has in real life uh, and I wanted to reflect that. In fact, as I've always said, the daily books are heavily in- influenced by the Sopranos. So also too is the um, terms of restitution. Uh, it's it's hashtag Scottish Sopranos. And interestingly, just as I was writing the book, they announced a new film was being made, uh, The Many Saints of New York, which is coming out next, or the end of this month, I think actually, in America at least which is a Sopranos prequel. So that's very interesting as well. Um, so hopefully Gangsters will be hot again, as they have been. I think The Sopranos was the most watched TV show in the world du- during lockdown. Did you know that? 
Yes, I did. You, I knew that because you told me. Well, it's you forget the last. It began twenty years ago, and the last episode was in two thousand and seven. Aired in two thousand and seven. So there's been a long time in between the last ever Sopranos episode and now, and a lot of young people who'd never seen or heard or were too young to watch such um, material on TV, picked up in box sets, streaming box sets and all the rest of it, which wasn't available when the Sopranos first came out. Mm. And have, you know, so it's like going back to the future for me. It's really, you know, if you look at Polly Walnuts and the Sopranos, there's a lot of him and Brian Scott. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, there, there is, there is. But in, in terms of restitution, it's, it's. Um, I, I get the, the the Sopranos connection and also in the violence, but the, the humor and the violence. Uh, now, I, I know you as a you know very peace loving, gentle uh, man. Did did right. that level of violence come difficult to you to write? It was very, it was very difficult to research, Douglas. It was very yeah. hard. I, mean, I spent hours poring over. Books about gangland and stuff. It was actually quite quite upsetting. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I know you are a sensitive, uh, gentlemanly, studious man. I am. It, hence the philosophy that that uh, the, the the Times Book Club picked up on. Indeed, but as I always say, what are you going to do? Mm. But why Paisley? Why did you Why did you decide to to set it? Predominantly in Paisley. Um, I first went to Paisley, I was an overspill student from Glasgow, and then they, they launched us in Paisley, they, they settled us in Paisley, in newly built halls, um, which were in Underwood Lane in the town. And they were brand new, and nothing worked. I remember that vividly. And that was my first experience of Paisley. And it's a place that has, um, it's kind of stayed with me all this time. I, I, I was there, I still lived there, and I was in the police I also uh, had businesses there later on in life. Um, don't say anything. And don't. And uh, <laughs> that's exactly what you'll sound like once you finish with. And also, of course, sadly, I nearly died in Paisley in 2017 in the in the RAH hospital. Mm. Um, so, it, and I and I remember thinking at the time, goodness me, this is ironic, isn't it? Uh, but. Fortunately, I managed to pull through, mm. uh, which was good. So Paisley means a lot to me. I love, you know, when you come from a wee place like Kintyre or, or Campbelltown and you go to a bigger town like Paisley, it's, it's a bit of a culture shock at first, even though I travelled a bit, a bit with my, my dad when we were in the Navy, when he was in the Navy, but we all felt as though we were in the Navy at the time. Mm. And I, I suppose that I was looking, I was expecting something different, but lo and behold, Paisley isn't like Glasgow. It's very, very different than Glasgow. Even, they even speak differently. They have the, the accent's different. And there's a, even though Paisley's a town of some like 100,000 people, it was just like a big Campbell town because there was that same warmth and that same, how are you doing? You know, people know each other and you, and, I, and I just felt completely at home almost immediately. Mm-hmm. So Paisley, I think it's a raw deal in many in many places, but but... And it's almost over, kind of overshadowed by Glasgow. But the history and culture and some of the brilliant musicians, actors, writers, um, media people that Paisley has produced is, is unbelievable, mm. you know? Uh, and I instantly took it to Paisley and Paisley's been with me all this t- time. I always refer to it as my second home. Yeah. 
I mean, the book only came out early September and, you know, it's already sold out and, and you know, in various outlets and has been an mm. incredible success. Has that surprised you? Did, it, did you expect it to be as warmly received? Of course I expected it to happen. You know, I'm, I'm picking up in the... In you said Mr. with all humility. Yeah, I'm, I'm picking up Mr Rankin's modesty. Of course I did. <laughs> I knew it would be a towering success. No, I'm just glad people like it and it's been very well reviewed so far. Um, and let's hope that continues. Yeah, we haven't yeah. got to the Campbellton Courier yet. No, not yet. Yeah, that is an excellent book. I mean, it is an excellent book. And it, what surprises me is that you wrote it. So, uh, me too. yeah, um, and it, I, I would recommend it if you know if you want a good, um, uh, uh, you know, well written book, read mine. If you want to be thoroughly entertained, uh, you'll laugh, you'll cry you will be horrified at, at, you know, at some of the goings on, you'll be surprised at some of the plot twists, then Terms of Restitution is the book for you. Well, being locked in, I was drunk the whole way through writing it, so I was surprised myself when I read it the next morning. <laughs> it was like I, I experienced it anew and fresh like a reader. I would wake up, peel the curry off my face, <laughs> and get, get the computer out and say to myself, goodness gracious, that's good. It's my book. Like, oh, that never happened, did it? So that's how that's kind of how it, it developed. The image that's in my head of the curry congealed onto your cheek. Actually, once once I really did that, I, I had a breakfast bar in this. I was I had a, I had a flat in Lochwinner, which isn't far from Paisley. And one night I came home worse for wear, and there was a brilliant curry shop just down the street in the village. I picked up, obviously picked up a curry before I. You know, I went home mm-hmm. and I woke up at six o'clock in the morning with my face in the curry. Now, if you'd ever tried to get a curry stain out your face after lying in it for about three or four hours, it isn't easy. No, I can't say I've ever had to try that. Well, you know, I looked like it was it was like half a face of fake tan for about three weeks. <laughs> and everybody comes, which which wrong I went back home to Cam, what's wrong with your face? I says, oh, just an industrial accident, you know. I didn't tell people I was Stephen drunk and landed in a, slept in a bowl of curry. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, with that, on that that tortured note, yeah. we must end today's spooks. I hope you've enjoyed it. And thank you again to Mr. Ian Rankin. It was a pleasure to have him yeah, on. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, fabulous. Don't forget, Douglas's book, A Rattle of Bones, is for sale in all good bookshops online on in paperback, ebook, and audiobook from Isis. Yep. No, no, not that Isis. And my book. Um, yep. Terms of Restitution, also yes. available from all good bookstores and probably a few bad ones uh, in paperback as well as ebook and audio and audible. That is it. So thank you so much for listening to it. The returned the reborn, the phoenix from the ashes, which is Spooks, S-B-O-O-K-S. And we hope to see you again or hear you again very, very soon. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Bye.